Book Five, Chapter Two of The History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Five, Chapter Two. Storming of the Great Temple. Spirit of the Aztecs. Distresses of the Garrison. SHARP COMBATS IN THE CITY DEATH OF MONTEZUMA Opposite to the Spanish quarters, at only a few rods' distance, stood the great Teocalli of Huitzilopochtli. This pyramidal mound, with the sanctuaries that crowned it, rising altogether to the height of near a hundred and fifty feet, afforded an elevated position that completely commanded the palace of Axacatl, occupied by the Christians. A body of five or six hundred Mexicans, Many of them nobles and warriors of the highest rank had got possession of the Teocalli, whence they discharged such a tempest of arrows on the garrison that no one could leave his defences for a moment without imminent danger, while the Mexicans, under shelter of the sanctuaries, were entirely covered from the fire of the besieged. It was obviously necessary to dislodge the enemy if the Spaniards would remain longer in their quarters. Cortez assigned this service to his chamberlain Escobar, giving him a hundred men for the purpose with orders to storm the Teocalli, and set fire to the sanctuaries. But that officer was thrice repulsed in the attempt, and after the most desperate efforts was obliged to return with considerable loss and without accomplishing his object. Cortez, who saw the immediate necessity of carrying the place, determined to leave the storming party himself. He was then suffering much from the wound in his left hand, which had disabled it for the present. He made the arm serviceable, however, by fastening his buckler to it, and thus crippled, sallied out at the head of three hundred chosen cavaliers, and several thousand of his auxiliaries. In the courtyard of the temple he found a numerous body of Indians prepared to dispute his passage. He briskly charged them, but the flat, smooth stones of the pavement were so slippery that the horses lost their footing, and many of them fell. Hastily dismounting, they sent back the animals to their quarters, and— Renewing the assault, the Spaniards succeeded without much difficulty in dispersing the Indian warriors, and opening a free passage for themselves to the Teocalli. Cortez, having cleared a way for the assault, sprang up the lower stairway, followed by Alvarado, Sandoval, Ordaz, and the other gallant cavaliers of his little band, leaving a file of arquebusiers and strong corps of Indian allies to hold the enemy in check at the foot of the monument. On the first landing, as well as on the several galleries above, and on the summit, the Aztec warriors were drawn up to dispute his passage. From their elevated position they showered down volleys of lighter missiles, together with heavy stones, beams, and burning rafters, which, thundering along the stairway, overturned the ascending Spaniards, and carried desolation through their ranks. The more fortunate, eluding or springing over these obstacles, succeeded in gaining the first terrace, where, throwing themselves on their enemies, they compelled them, after a short resistance, to fall back. The assailants pressed on, effectually supported by a brisk fire of the musketeers from below, which so much galled the Mexicans in their exposed situation, that they were glad to take shelter on the broad summit of the Teocalli. Cortez and his comrades were close upon the rear, and the two parties soon found themselves face to face on this aerial battlefield, engaged in mortal combat in presence of the whole city, as well as the troops within the courtyard who paused, as if by mutual consent, from their own hostilities, gazing in silent expectation on the issue of those above. The area, though somewhat smaller than the base of the Teocalli, was large enough to afford a fair field of fight for a thousand combatants. It was paved with broad, flat stones. 
No impediment occurred over its surface except the huge sacrificial block and the temples of stone which rose to the height of forty feet at the further extremity of the arena. One of these had been consecrated to the cross, the other was still occupied by the Mexican war-god. The Christian and the Aztec contended for their religions under the very shadow of their respective shrines, while the Indian priests, running to and fro, with their hair wildly streaming over their sable mantles, seemed hovering in mid-air, like so many demons of darkness urging on the work of slaughter. The parties closed with the desperate fury of men who had no hope but in victory. Quarter was neither asked nor given, and to fly was impossible. The edge of the area was unprotected by parapet or battlement. The least slip would be fatal, and the combatants, as they struggled in mortal agony, were sometimes seen to roll over the sheer sides of the precipice together. Many of the Aztecs, seeing the fate of such of their comrades as fell into the hands of the Spaniards, voluntarily threw themselves headlong from the lofty summit and were dashed in pieces on the pavement. The battle lasted with unintermitting fury for three hours. The number of the enemy was double that of the Christians, and it seemed as if it were a contest which must be determined by numbers and brute force rather than by superior science. But that was not so. The invulnerable armor of the Spaniard, his sword of matchless temper, and his skill in the use of it, gave him advantages which far outweighed the odds of physical strength and numbers. After doing all that the courage of despair could enable men to do, resistance grew fainter and fainter on the side of the Aztecs. One after another they had fallen. Two or three priests only survived to be led away in triumph by the victors. Every other combatant was stretched a corpse on the bloody arena, or had been hurled from the giddy heights. Yet the loss of Spaniards was not inconsiderable. It amounted to forty-five of their best men, and nearly all the remainder were more or less injured in the desperate conflict. The victorious cavaliers now rushed toward the sanctuaries. The lower story was of stone, the two upper were of wood. Penetrating into their recesses, they had the mortification to find the image of the Virgin and the cross removed, but in the other edifice they still beheld the grim figure of Huitzilopochtli, with the censer of smoking hearts, and the walls of his oratory reeking with gore, not improbably of their own countrymen. With shouts of triumph the Christians tore the uncouth monster from his niche, and tumbled him in the presence of the horror-struck Aztecs down the steps of the Teocali. They then set fire to the accursed building— the flame speedily ran up the slender towers, sending forth an ominous light over city, lake, and valley, to the remotest hut among the mountains. It was the funeral pyre of paganism, and proclaimed the fall of that sanguinary religion which had so long hung like a dark cloud over the fair regions of Anahuac. No achievement in the war struck more awe into the Mexicans than this storming of the great temple, in which the white men seemed to bid defiance equally to the powers of God and man. Having accomplished this good work, the Spaniards descended the winding slopes of the Teocali with more free and buoyant step, as if conscious that the blessing of heaven now rested on their arms. They passed through the dusky files of Indian warriors in the courtyard, too much dismayed by the appalling scenes they had witnessed to offer resistance, and reached their own quarters in safety. That very night they followed up the blow by a sortie on the sleeping town, and burned three hundred houses, the horrors of conflagration being made still more impressive by occurring at the hour when the Aztecs, from their own system of warfare, were least prepared for them. Hoping to find the temper of the natives somewhat subdued by these reverses, Cortes now determined with his usual policy to make them a vantage-ground for proposing terms of accommodation. He accordingly invited the enemy to a parley, and as the principal chiefs attended by their followers assembled in the great square, he mounted the turret before occupied by Montezuma, and made signs that he would address them. 
Marina, as usual, took her place by his side, as his interpreter. The multitude gazed with earnest curiosity on the Indian girl, whose influence with the Spaniards was well known, and whose connection with the general in particular had led the Aztecs to designate her by her Mexican name of Malinche. Cortez, speaking through the soft musical tones of his mistress, told his audience they must now be convinced that they had nothing further to hope from opposition to the Spaniards. They had seen their gods trampled in the dust, their altars broken, their dwellings burned, their warriors falling on all sides. All this, continued he, you have brought on yourselves by your rebellion. Yet for the affection the sovereign, whom you have unworthily treated, still bears you. I would willingly stay my hand if you will lay down your arms, and return once more to your obedience. But if you do not, he concluded, I will make your city a heap of ruins, and leave not a soul alive to mourn over it. But the Spanish commander did not yet comprehend the character of the Aztecs, if he thought to intimidate them by menaces. Calm in their exterior, and slow to move, they were the more difficult to pacify when roused, and now that they had been stirred to their inmost depths, it was no human voice that could still the tempest. It may be, however, that Cortez did not so much misconceive the character of the people. He may have felt that an authoritative tone was the only one he could assume with any chance of effect, in his present position, in which milder and more conciliatory language would, by intimating a consciousness of inferiority, have too certainly defeated its own object. It was true, they answered, he had destroyed their temples, broken in pieces their gods, massacred their countrymen. Many more, doubtless, were yet to fall under their terrible swords. But they were content, so long as for every thousand Mexicans they could shed the blood of a single white man. Look out, they continued, on our terraces and streets. See them still thronged with warriors as far as your eyes can reach. Our numbers are scarcely diminished by our losses. Yours, on the contrary, are lessening every hour. You are perishing from hunger and sickness. Your provisions and water are failing. You must soon fall into our hands. The bridges are broken down, and you cannot escape. There will be too few of you left to glut the vengeance of our gods. As they concluded, they sent a volley of arrows over the battlements, which compelled the Spaniards to descend and take refuge in their defences. The fierce and indomitable spirit of the Aztecs filled the besieged with its dismay. All, then, that they had done and suffered, their battles by day, their vigils by night, the perils they had braved, even the victories they had won, were of no avail. It was too evident that they had no longer the spring of ancient superstition to work upon the breasts of the natives, who, like some wild beast that has burst the bonds of its keeper, seemed now to swell and exult in the full consciousness of their strength. The annunciation respecting the bridges fell like a knell on the ears of the Christians. All that they had heard was too true, and they gazed on one another with looks of anxiety and dismay. The same consequences followed, which sometimes take place among the crew of a shipwrecked vessel. Subordination was lost in the dreadful sense of danger. A spirit of mutiny broke out, especially among the recent levies drawn from the army of Narvaez. They had come into the country from no motive of ambition, but attracted simply by the glowing reports of its opulence, and they had fondly hoped to return in a few months with their pockets well lined with the gold of the Aztec monarch. But how different had been their lot! From the first hour of their landing they had experienced only trouble and disaster, privations of every description, sufferings unexampled, and they now beheld in perspective a fate yet more appalling. Bitterly did they lament the hour when they left the sunny fields of Cuba for those cannibal regions, and heartily did they curse their own folly in listening to the call of Velasquez, and still more in embarking under the banner of Cortez. 
they now demanded with noisy vehemence to be led instantly from the city, and refused to serve longer in defence of a place where they were cooped up like sheep in the shambles, waiting only to be dragged to slaughter. In all this they were rebuked by the more orderly soldier-like conduct of the veterans of Cortez. These latter had shared with their general the day of his prosperity, and they were not disposed to desert him in the tempest. It was indeed obvious, on a little reflection, that the only chance of safety in the existing crisis rested on subordination and union, and that even this chance must be greatly diminished under any other leader than their present one. Thus pressed by enemies without, and by factions within, that leader was found, as usual, true to himself. Circumstances so appalling as would have paralyzed a common mind only stimulated his to higher action, and drew forth all its resources. He combined what is most rare, singular coolness and constancy of purpose, with a spirit of enterprise that might well be called romantic. His presence of mind did not now desert him. He calmly surveyed his condition, and weighed the difficulties which surrounded him before coming to a decision. Independently of the hazard of a retreat, in the face of a watchful and desperate foe, it was deep mortification to surrender up the city, which he had so long lorded it as a master, to abandon the rich treasures which he had secured to himself and his followers, to forego the very means by which he had hoped to propitiate the favour of his sovereign, and secure an amnesty for his irregular proceedings. This, he well knew, must after all be dependent on success. To fly now was to acknowledge himself further removed from the conquest than ever. What a close was this to a career so auspiciously begun! What a contrast to his magnificent vaunts! What a triumph would it afford to his enemies! the governor of Cuba would be amply revenged. But if such humiliating reflections crowded on his mind, the alternative of remaining, in his present crippled condition, seemed yet more desperate. With his men daily diminishing in strength and numbers, their provisions reduced so low that a small daily ration of bread was all the sustenance afforded to the soldier under his extraordinary fatigues, with the breaches every day widening in his feeble fortifications, with his ammunition, in fine, nearly expended, it would be impossible to maintain the place much longer, and none but men of iron constitutions and tempers like the Spaniards could have held it out so long against the enemy. The chief embarrassment was as to the time and manner in which it would be expedient to evacuate the city. The best route seemed to be that of Tlacopan, Tacuba. For the causeway, the most dangerous part of the road, was but two miles long in that direction and would therefore place the fugitives much sooner than either of the other great avenues on terra firma. Before his final departure, however, he proposed to make another sally in that direction, in order to reconnoitre the ground, and at the same time divert the enemy's attention from his real purpose by a show of active operations. For some days his workmen had been employed in constructing a military machine of his own invention. It was called a manta, and was contrived somewhat on the principle of the mantelets used in the wars of the Middle Ages. It was, however, more complicated, consisting of a tower made of light beams and planks, having two chambers, one over the other. These were to be filled with musketeers, and the sides were provided with loopholes, through which a fire could be kept up on the enemy. The great advantage proposed by this contrivance was to afford a defence to the troops against the missiles hurled from the terraces. These machines, three of which were made, rested on rollers, and were provided with strong ropes which, by which they were to be dragged along the streets by the Tlaxcalan auxiliaries. The Mexicans gazed with astonishment on this warlike machinery, and as the rolling fortresses advanced, belching forth fire and smoke from their entrails, the enemy, incapable of making an impression on those within, fell back in dismay. 
By bringing the Montas under the walls of the houses, the Spaniards were enabled to fire with effect on the mischievous tenants of the Azoteas, and when this did not silence them, by letting a ladder or light drawbridge fall on the roof from the top of the Manta, they opened a passage to the terrace and closed with the combatants hand to hand. They could not, however, thus approach the higher buildings, from which the Indian warriors threw down such heavy masses of stone and timber as dislodged the planks that covered the machines, or, thundering against their sides, shook the frail edifices to their foundations, threatening all within with indiscriminate ruin. Indeed, the success of the experiment was doubtful, when the intervention of a canal put a stop to their further progress. The Spaniards now found the assertion of their enemies too well confirmed. The bridge which traversed the opening had been demolished, and although the canals which intersected the city were in general of no great width or depth, the removal of the bridges not only impeded the movements of the general's clumsy machines, but effectually disconcerted those of his cavalry. Resolving to abandon the mantas, he gave orders to fill up the chasm with stone, timber, and other rubbish drawn from the ruined buildings, and to make a new passageway for the army. While this labor was going on, the Aztec slingers and archers on the other side of the opening kept up a galling discharge on the Christians, the more defenseless from the nature of their occupation. When the work was completed and a safe passage secured, the Spanish cavaliers rode briskly against the enemy, who, unable to resist the shock of the steel-clad column, fell back with precipitation to where another canal afforded a similar strong position of defense. There was no less than seven of these canals, intersecting the great street of Tlacopan, and at every one the same scene was renewed, the Mexicans making a gallant stand and inflicting some loss at each on their persevering antagonists. These operations consumed two days, when, after incredible toil, the Spanish general had the satisfaction to find the line of communication completely re-established through the whole length of the avenue, and the principal bridges placed under strong detachments of infantry. At this juncture, when he had driven the foe before him to the furthest extremity of the city, where it touches on the causeway, he was informed that the Mexicans, disheartened by their reverses, decided to open parley with him respecting the terms of an accommodation, and that their chiefs awaited his return for that purpose at the fortress. Overjoyed at the intelligence, he instantly rode back, attended by Alvarado, Sandoval, and about sixty of the cavaliers, to his quarters. The Mexicans proposed that he should release the two priests captured in the temple, who might be the bearers of his terms, and serve as agents for conducting the negotiation. They were accordingly sent with the requisite instructions to their countrymen, but they did not return. The whole was an artifice of the enemy, anxious to procure the liberation of their religious leaders, one of whom was their Teoteupli, or high priest, whose presence was indispensable in the probable event of a new coronation. Cortez, meanwhile, relying on the prospects of a speedy arrangement, was hastily taking some refreshment with his officers after the fatigues of the day, when he received the alarming tidings that the enemy were in arms again with more fury than ever, that they had overpowered the detachments post under Alvarado at three of the bridges, and were busily occupied in demolishing them. Stung with shame at the facility with which he had been duped by his wily foe, or rather by his own sanguine hopes, Cortez threw himself into the saddle, and, followed by his brave companions, galloped back at full speed to the scene of the action. The Mexicans recoiled before the impetuous charge of the Spaniards. The bridges were again restored, and Cortez and his chivalry rode down the whole extent of the great street, driving the enemy like frightened deer at the points of their lances. But before he could return on his steps, he had the mortification to find that the indefatigable foe, gathering from the adjoining lanes and streets, had again closed on his infantry, who, worn down by fatigue, were unable to maintain their position at one of the principal bridges. 
new swarms of warriors now poured in on all sides, overwhelming the little band of Christian cavaliers, with a storm of stones, darts, and arrows, which rattled like hail on their armour, and on that of their well-barbed horses. Most of the missiles, indeed, glanced harmless from the good panoplies of steel, or thick quilted cotton, but now and then one better aimed penetrated the joints of the harness, and stretched the rider on the ground. The confusion became greater around the broken bridge. Some of the horsemen were thrown into the canal, and their steeds floundered wildly about without a rider. Cortez himself, at this crisis, did more than any other to cover the retreat of his followers. While the bridge was repairing, he plunged boldly into the midst of the barbarians, striking down an enemy at every vault of his charger, cheering on his own men, and spreading terror through the ranks of his opponents by the well-known sound of his battle-cry. Never did he display greater hardihood, or more freely expose his person, emulating, says an old chronicler, the feats of the Roman Cocles. In this way he stayed the tide of assailants, till the last man had crossed the bridge, when some of the planks having given way, he was compelled to leap a chasm of full six feet in width, amidst a cloud of missiles, before he could place himself in safety. A report ran through the army that the general was slain. It soon spread through the city to the great joy of the Mexicans, and reached the fortress, where the besieged were thrown into no less consternation. But happily for them it was false. He indeed received two severe contusions on the knee, but in other respects remained uninjured. At no time, however, had he been in such extreme danger, and his escape and that of his companions were esteemed little less than a miracle. The coming of night dispersed the Indian battalions, which, vanishing like birds of ill omen from the field, left the well-contested pass in possession of the Spaniards. They returned, however, with none of the joyous feelings of the conquerors in their citadel, but with slow step and dispirited, with weapons hacked and armor battered, and fainting under the loss of blood, fasting, and fatigue. In this condition they had yet to learn the tidings of a fresh misfortune in the death of Montezuma. The Indian monarch had rapidly declined since he had received his injury, sinking, however, quite as much under the anguish of a wounded spirit as under disease. He continued in the same moody state of insensibility as that already described, holding little communication with those around him, deaf to consolation, obstinately rejecting all medical remedies as well as nourishment. Perceiving his end approach, some of the cavaliers present in the fortress, whom the kindness of his manners had personally attached to him, were anxious to save the soul of the dying prince from the sad doom of those who perish in the darkness of unbelief. They accordingly waited on him, with Father Almedo at their head, and in the most earnest manner implored him to open his eyes to the error of his creed and consent to be baptized. But Montezuma, whatever may have been suggested to the contrary, seems never to have faltered in his hereditary faith, or to have contemplated becoming an apostate for surely he merits that name in its most odious application, who, whether Christian or pagan, renounces his religion without conviction of its falsehood. Indeed, it was a too implicit reliance on its oracles which had led him to give such easy confidence to the Spaniards. His intercourse with them had, doubtless, not sharpened his desire to embrace their communion, and the calamities of his country he might consider as sent by his gods to punish him for his hospitality to those who had desecrated and destroyed their shrines. When Father Almedo, therefore, kneeling at his side with the uplifted crucifix, affectionately besought him to embrace the sign of man's redemption, he coldly repulsed the priest, exclaiming, I have but a few moments to live, and will not at this hour desert the faith of my fathers. One thing, however, seemed to press heavily on Montezuma's mind. This was the fate of his children, especially of three daughters, whom he had by his two wives, for there were certain rites of marriage which distinguished the lawful wife from the concubine. Calling Cortez to his bedside, he earnestly commended these children to his care, as the most precious jewels that he could leave him. 
he besought the general to interest his master, the emperor, in their behalf, and to see that they should not be left destitute, but be allowed some portion of their rightful inheritance. Your lord will do this, he concluded, if it were only for the friendly offices I have rendered the Spaniards, and for the love I have shown them, though it has brought me to this condition. For this I bear them no ill will. Such, according to Cortes himself, were the words of the dying monarch. Not long after, on the 30th of June, 1520, he expired in the arms of some of his own nobles, who still remained faithful in their attendance on his person. Montezuma, at the time of his death, was about forty-one years old, of which he reigned eighteen. His person and manners have already been described. He left a numerous progeny by his various wives, most of whom, having lost their consideration after the conquest, fell into obscurity as they mingled with the mass of the Indian population. Two of them, however, a son and a daughter, who embraced Christianity, became the founders of noble houses in Spain. The government, willing to show its gratitude for the large extent of empire derived from their ancestor, conferred on them ample estates and important hereditary honors, and the counts of Montezuma and Tula, intermarrying with the best blood of Castile, intimated their, by their names and titles the illustrious descent from the royal dynasty of Mexico. Montezuma's death was a misfortune to the Spaniards. While he lived they had a precious pledge in their hands, which, in extremity, they might possibly have turned to account. Now the last link was snapped which connected them with the natives of the country. But independently of interested feelings, Cortes and his officers were much affected by his death from personal considerations, and when they gazed on the cold remains of the ill-starred monarch, they may have felt a natural compunction as they contrasted his late flourishing condition with that to which his friendship for them had now reduced him. The Spanish commander showed all respect for his memory. His body, arrayed in its royal robes, was laid decently on a bier and borne on the shoulders of his nobles to his subjects in the city. What honors, if any, were paid to his remains is uncertain. A sound of wailing, distinctly heard in the western quarters of the capital, was interpreted by the Spaniards into the moans of a funeral procession, as it bore the body to be laid among those of his ancestors under the princely shades of Chapultepec. Others state that it was removed to a burial place in the city named Copalco, and there burnt with the usual solemnities and signs of lamentation by his chiefs, but not without some unworthy insults from the Mexican populace. Whatever be the fact, the people, occupied with the stirring scenes in which they were engaged, were probably not long mindful of the monarch, who had taken no share in their late patriotic movements. Nor is it strange that the very memory of his sepulchre should be effaced in the terrible catastrophe which afterwards overwhelmed the capital and swept away every landmark from its surface. End of Book 5, Chapter 2 Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on November 18, 2007